Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Thank you, John. Thank you, uh, all of you, also, for all that uh, you have done to, uh, to make this possible. Um, just before uh, moving into God's Word this morning, um, Barb wanted me to let you know that there are some kitchen, I don't know, what do you call them, Barb? Stuff? Small appliances, china, crock pot, uh, some other things like that, um, that in terms of cleaning out the little white church and getting ready to do things over here, there are some things that we discovered that we don't need. And so if you would like to, uh, after this service, go on over to the little white church, if there's any things like that that you could use, you can just uh, scout it out. And uh, I think folks just take it. Uh, that's You don't need to check out with anybody, just... Um, grab and go if you would like to. So we are coming to a conclusion in our series on the Ten Commandments. And we are at Commandment 9, and we have been doing two commandments a day, and I realize the way the schedule works that today um, I could actually focus on one and then another one next Sunday, Palm Sunday, uh, and get through our Lenten series together. And so commandment nine is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So we're continuing this series, and I want to encourage you not to see the Ten Commandments as ten negatives. It is true that they begin, you shall not, but in fact, they're designed for us to have a good life. They're designed by God to help us to have a life of joy, to have a life that he would have for us. And by saying thou shalt not, it really isn't a negative, it's a positive that is saying if you follow these guidelines for your life, you are going to find in your life a place of joy. Today, we're going to be talking about deception, deception. Before we're very old, we have discovered in our lives what deception is, haven't we? I remember when Scotty was a little guy, I don't know if he's in this service or not, but when Scotty was a little guy, uh, Barb, I remember on probably more than one occasion, would hear a little rattling of a uh, of, of some, some, um, something in the kitchen. She knew what it was. It was the lid on the cookie jar. And Scotty was in there <clears throat> by himself, and uh, she heard that, and she said, um, Scott, she yelled, are you in the cookie jar? <clears throat> and Scott came around the corner and said, No, Mom, I wasn't in the cookie jar, but he had chocolate chip and cookie around around his mouth. When When we're young, we experience fairly soon this idea of deception, getting us out of trouble, perhaps, or hoping it will get us out of trouble. When we're kids, we may call it getting fooled, but the fact of the matter is, As we get into adulthood, we discover that lies and falsehood are pretty serious business. Deception is pretty challenging in the lives of any one of us. And one of the reasons why it is, is that we enter into spiritual warfare when we enter into deception. Jesus is identified as light and truth, 
And the devil is identified with the father of lies and darkness. And so as we consider deception, I want to suggest this morning there are some different kinds of deception, some different kinds of lies that we face in our lives. The first one is probably closest to the intention of our text. Our text is about bearing false witness. It's about lying about someone. In a a court of law, we call it perjury. And it's uh, outside the court, something that we would refer to perhaps as gossip or manufactured stories about someone intended to hurt them or uh, a violation of a confidence that someone has shared with us in a desire to make them look bad. There's a piece of prose that I think expresses it well. First somebody told it, then the room couldn't hold it, so the busy tongues rolled it till they got it outside. Then the crowd came across it and never once lost it, but tossed it and tossed it till it grew long and wide. This lie brought forth others, dark sisters and brothers and fathers and mothers, a terrible crew. And while headlong they hurried, the people they flurried and troubled and worried as lies always do. And so evil-bodied the monster lay goaded till at last it exploded in smoke and in shame. Then from the mud and from the mire the pieces flew higher and hit the sad victim and killed a good name. James talks about the tongue as that part of us that can be set on fire by hell. He says in chapter 3, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also, though they are so large, they are driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, whatever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. How do we combat this desire to slander? Well, James goes on to help us. If we get to the heart of the matter a little later in the chapter, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." Let's look at what it says. It says, when we put off bitter envy and selfish ambition, which are the motivators behind the desire to bring somebody else down, we take away that motivation. We become then in our own lives humble, pure, peace-loving, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. When we live that way, when those are the characteristics of our lives, we have no need to slander. The second deception that we're going to discuss today is the desire to cover up, the lie that is in covering up some other kind of sin, some other kind of failure in our lives. It's interesting because 
this type of deception is directly related to some kind of an offense, to some kind of a sin that we don't want to be known, and so we, we try to cover it in some kind of a way. It's interesting. It happens to perhaps each one of us, but we've seen this, unfortunately, too often in the office of the President of the United States. Richard Nixon said, I'm not a crook, but the tapes from his office, the recordings from his office, suggest otherwise. On the other side of the aisle, we remember Bill Clinton declaring, I did not have sex with that woman. I came across an interesting video, a guy that wrote a book about how you can tell through body language whether someone is lying or not. Let's watch this brief video together. Hello, I'm Robert Phipps, author of Body Language. It's what you don't say that matters. One of the most common questions I'm asked at seminars, personally, and by email, is how to know when somebody is telling you lies. Let's face it, none of us like being lied to. None of us like being taken for granted or being made a mug of. Especially in business. Personally, it hurts. But in business, it can cost you a lot of money, thousands, millions of dollars. So it's useful to understand why people may lie to you. Negotiation is a prime example of when people will lie. Most salespeople don't say, there's my best price straight away. And most buyers don't go, I'll have it. So it's a game of cat and mouse. It's a game of poker, a game of bluff. So what you're looking for is the signals that tell you that somebody may be bluffing or may be completely lying. Common signals are hand-to-face gestures. They'll play around their mouth or touch the side of the nose or even rub the side of the neck, even pulling at the collar sometimes. Rubbing the back of the neck. This is a self-comforting gesture. When you think back to your childhood, if you fell over and grazed your knee, you went running to mummy and mummy went, ah, there, 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 and she rubs the back of your neck and the back of your head like that. We carry this through to adulthood and it's quite a common signal when people are under stress, especially when they're lying. They'll say something like, um, yes, we can definitely do that. So look for signals that don't quite fit. If they've not been using this all the way through the the transaction, all the way through the meeting, why are they suddenly doing it now when they say a crucial thing that they're committing to? Other common signals are avoiding your eye contact. If they've given you good eye contact throughout the meeting and then all of a sudden you get to the crucial bit and they start looking off over to the left here, then maybe they're not telling you the truth. Maybe it's worth questioning more to find out whether or not what they're actually saying is really true. Another common signal when people are telling lies is their feet and legs. They're the furthest point from the brain, so consequently, hardest to control. Most people don't think what their legs are doing from one minute to the next. But when people are stood up and they tell lies, they will quite often raise themselves up on their heels, or they'll juggle their feet up and down like that. So be careful when you see people going up, or if you're looking at their toes, if they're moving them up and down like that. Take notice of what you've just been talking about. Is it a crucial point? Does it matter? Why would they lie at that point? it's worth taking note and perhaps questioning further to get clarity. This also applies when people are seated. In fact, it applies more when people are seated because you've got more freedom of use of your legs. Another signal that people give off when they're lying is how they use their hands. If they've been talking to you with the palms open and honest and giving you information and you ask them some awkward questions and all of a sudden these palms disappear under armpits, behind backs, in pockets, 
So look when you can see somebody's palms open. It normally means they're being quite honest with you. For more tips. So there's a young lady on the front row over here laughing because I have a habit of doing this. <laughs> and then I, 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 I shake my leg quite a bit as well. So I, um, I don't know. Uh, I think I, I just got found out, Barbie. Um, so... We probably shouldn't be surprised at the use of deception to cover sin. Way back in Genesis, we have the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And in Genesis 1 and 2, they have this rich relationship with God. It's an open relationship. They're, 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 they're naked, and uh, that's just, a, it's, 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 I mean, not only are they physically naked, but it's a metaphor of being completely open. There's nothing to hide. And then they decide the one thing they're not supposed to do is take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they do it. And how do they feel afterwards? Well, they feel shame and a need to hide, to cover up, literally. So they make, get leaves and they cover up. And, uh, and then as the, uh, the, the, the story goes, when they hear God walking in the garden, they try to hide from him. Now they try to physically hide from him. They knew they were guilty. And friends, when we attempt to cover up our sin by deception, we know what we've done. But we want to cover it. We don't want to get found out. First came sin, then came cover up. And it's interesting how this evolved with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This was a change. They had been in this close relationship and now they're hiding, they're covering up. And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said to him, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, this is classic. The man said, the woman who you gave me to be with, uh, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. (laughs) Love it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? And what did she say? The serpent deceived me. Isn't this fascinating? First there's sin. Then there's cover-up, and then there's attempt to shift responsibility to blame somebody else. Isn't this classic? I mean, truly classic uh, when you see this happening over and over in the lives of people, well, in our lives, but especially in the lives of those who are in positions of leadership in the country when something is found out. It's just the classic way. First there's the sin, then there's the cover-up, and then there's the attempt to blame somebody else. The third kind of deception is the lie of hypocrisy. The lie of hypocrisy. So this is really important to understand. It's not hypocritical to commit oneself to a standard greater than one's ability to achieve. It's not hypocritical to commit your life to a standard beyond your ability to achieve. In fact, everybody in this room, I hope, has done that. 
if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have committed yourself to look like Jesus, to begin in your life a journey of what we call sanctification, a journey of character development so that we increasingly begin to look like Jesus in our lives. But the truth is we all fall short of that and we won't achieve that this side of heaven. But that doesn't make us hypocrites. Hypocrisy is to claim to have achieved a level of character that we have not yet achieved. Hypocrisy is to present ourselves as nearly perfect believers who have our lives all together when we do not. And it's this category of Christians that are so odious to people outside the church. Because they see Christians as claiming the moral high ground, and then they see the way they actually act, and and it, it stinks. I remember having lunch with my Marine boss. I was a chaplain to a Marine squadron, and uh, we were both reservists. He a Marine reservist, me a Navy reservist. And uh, he worked down here in uh, Snohomish County. And so I, I, uh, I, he and I had lunch one day, and we had a great relationship. And I, I felt comfortable enough to explore um, why he wasn't engaged with a, with a church, because he was, he was just a really great guy, good character. And, and he said to me, he said that, that the reason he didn't engage with church is because of his experience with hypocrites, people who claimed to be far more than what they were. Now, I attempted to help him with that. I, I attempted to, to talk about how, you know, we, we often um, desire more for our lives than what we achieve, but I, alas, I'm not sure that I was entirely successful. Many observe self-proclaimed Christians and say that if that's what Christians are like, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and I think that these kind of folks are so repugnant because they claim to be something that they are not. They claim to be better than other people. But they usually pick up the sin of the Pharisees from their self-proclaimed moral high ground, they judge other people. And this is what Jesus had to say about that kind of religion. He says, judge not, Matthew 7, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Friends, we overcome hypocrisy by being real people. Sometimes we call it being authentic. We know where we're headed. We know that we desire to put on the character of Christ, but we know that we aren't there yet. We haven't arrived. And so we realize that we need to navigate life together. We need to grow in Christ without seeing ourselves as better than others. I recall the story of the Nuremberg War Trials and the Jewish individual that was called upon to testify regarding the treatment that they had received at his hands in 
one of the concentration camps. And he attempted to give his testimony when he, when he completely broke down. He, he, he broke down in tears and was unable to continue testifying at that moment. After he had come off the stand, someone came to him and asked him, was it because of the terrible memories of what happened to you that that happened when you were giving testimony? And he said, no, he said, it was in that moment that I realized I was capable of doing the same thing. When we understand what we're capable of doing, friends, it drives us toward humility and not hypocrisy. Authentic Christianity doesn't mean we're constantly telling others the deep sins of our lives, but it's letting others know that we're on a journey. We too experience failure. We too have to work through challenges. And the challenges of our own journey should lead us not to judge others so much as to have compassion and mercy and understanding as we help others with their failure. We navigate life together. That's our tagline as a church because we need each other in this journey together so we can help one another. Finally, this morning, there is the deception that comes when we lie to ourselves. Scott Peck is the author of a book called The Road Less Traveled, and he wrote another book called The People of the Lie. It's a less known book, but uh, profound nonetheless. As the title of his book suggests, there are people he identifies as evil people. They are people of the lie, and yet at the heart of his thesis is not just that these people are good at deceiving others, but rather that they're very good at deceiving themselves. They build in their own lives layer after layer after layer of deception, self-deception. This layer after layer hides the truth. Well, it's really an effort to hide the truth about oneself. Peck writes this, he says, utterly dedicated to preserving their self-image of perfection. They are unceasingly engaged in the effort to maintain the appearance of moral purity. They worry about this a great deal. They are acutely sensitive to social norms and what others might think of them. They dress well, go to work on time, pay their taxes, and outwardly seem to live lives that are above reproach. But the words image and appearance and outwardly are crucial to understanding the morality of the evil. While they seem to lack any motivation to be good, they intensely desire to appear good. Their goodness is all on a level of pretense. It is, in fact, a lie. That is why they are called the people of the lie. Actually, the lie is designed not so much to deceive others as to deceive themselves. They cannot or will not tolerate the pain of self-reproach. The decorum with which they lead their lives is maintained as a mirror in which they can see themselves reflected righteously. Peck goes on to point out that people who have allowed themselves to get to this place become so narcissistically self-absorbed that they come to a place where they are unable to have empathy for others. In his words, their narcissism makes the evil dangerous not only because it motivates them to scapegoat others, but also because it deprives them of the restraint that results from empathy and respect for others. 
We talked earlier about the invasion of Ukraine. I, I, I can't but feel that the president of Russia fits the qualifications of what we're talking about here in the sense that he seems to not be able to have empathy and compassion towards the horrific, hellish nature of war in the destruction of the cities and the people of Ukraine. In John 8.44, we read that lies are the native language of Satan. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. He's the father of lies. There is no truth in him. Those who give themselves over to evil in this way have so many layers, they don't know what truth is. These people are so taken with themselves and how they appear to others, they do not seem to have the ability to see failure in themselves. They have no concept of their own failure, so they don't have compassion and mercy for others. Have you noticed how when you come to terms with your own failure, you tend to have more compassion, more empathy for people when they are going through their experience? But people of the lie don't think they fail. They have no, 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 no sense of their own failure, and so they have no empathy or compassion. Quite honestly, they really don't care. They just don't care. And like President Putin, they are very dangerous people. Perhaps the greatest danger deception brings to our lives is when we lie to ourselves so long that we actually believe the lie we're talking about a grand scale when we talk about the invasion of Ukraine. But on a more personal level, perhaps it affects our lives more directly when it comes to addictions in our lives. So many people who have addictions don't believe that they are addicted. They say, yes, I, I may drink a little too much alcohol on occasion, but I can quit anytime I want to. In the world of Alcoholics Anonymous, folks, in order to begin healing, have to come to the truth about oneself in order to get help. And that's where the famous intervention comes in, where someone who is destroying their lives and the lives of those around them because of an addiction of some kind but they don't believe that to be a truth about themselves, that they come into a place where their spouse and their children and their friends and their work associates gather in the room and say, no, Fred, you do have a problem, and we all see that problem in your life. That intervention breaks through the lies that this individual has been telling himself or herself for years. Paul tells us we should look at ourselves honestly. He writes in Romans 12, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. Friends, this morning you might be saying, I don't have an anger problem, I just get angry. Or I don't have a money problem, I just spend more than I make. Or I don't have a language problem, I just have a rich vocabulary. 
Would you take a moment today and fill in the blanks for yourself? I don't have a blank problem. I just fill in the blank. For 15 years, Jim Fix, the author of the 1978 bestseller, The Complete Book of Running, ran 80 miles a week, and he appeared to be in tip-top shape. It didn't seem possible that a man his age could be in better condition, yet at the age of 52, on a rural road in Vermont, when he was running, he had a massive heart attack and died. His wife, Alice, said that she was sure that Fix had no idea he suffered from a heart problem. Why? Because he refused to get regular checkups. After Jim Fix's death, doctors speculated his heart was so strong, he may not have had the telltale chest pains or shortness of breath that usually signal arterial heart disease. This ninth commandment reminds us that we need to tell the truth. Truth sets us free from the bondage of deception. And here's the amazing thing with the Ten Commandments and with this one in particular, is that when we tell the truth, it sets us free. The truth sets us free. And when we're set free, we can enter into life with joy. There's this biblical association of Truth, freedom, and joy. Jesus is the truth, and it's the truth that sets us free. And if Jesus sets us free, we're free indeed. Friends, this is not a sermon or a time for a moment of self-punishment or morbid thoughts about what poor, wretched souls we are. But it's a season As we're coming upon Holy Week, as Pastor Nancy reminded us, this is really a season of joy. It's a season when we remember the cross where Jesus became the means by which our sins are forgiven, where the resurrection takes place, showing us that Jesus indeed was the Son of God and reminding us that we too will live eternally. I love Psalm 51. It's what I close with this morning, it's, it's a recognition of this connection between truth, sin, confession, forgiveness, freedom, and joy. In the face of his adultery with Bathsheba, when confronted with his sin, David put it this way in Psalm 51. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, say it with me, the joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Truth, confession, repentance, and the joy of the Lord follows. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the blessing of your presence. We thank you for the truth and the instruction of your word. I pray today for any of us in the room that need to deal with deception, that need to deal with lies in our lives. Point us, Lord, to the truth. Point us to confession and repentance that we might have freedom and joy. In Jesus' name.